from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 6th. Today, rewriting the campaign playbook, how Americans are weighing risks, and the anxiety-fueled hellscape that is the grocery store. In a typical election year, candidates from dog catcher all the way up to presidential nominee would be spending their days meeting people right now. They'd be raising money from donors in living rooms around the country. They would be going to rallies and events. Their staffs would be out on the street registering voters at farmers markets and things like that. And and right now, because of this virus, none of that is happening. My name is Michael Shear. I'm a national political reporter for The Washington Post. And so now that people are basically not allowed to come into close physical contact with each other, what are we seeing from these campaigns instead? Thousands and thousands of Zoom calls. Hey, everybody. Hope you're uh, uh, all things considered doing well. Let me get a, uh, for those who have video, let me get a thumbs up that you can hear me okay. Um, we are we are starting to do more online meetings like this. Lots of Zoom calls every day. I, you know, at, at every level... People have sort of switched over to video conferencing as their sort of go-to. And we are having Zoom call after Zoom call. I would much rather be gathering together with you in person and having a barbecue. They're holding virtual town halls to educate people about, you know, even basic things like the virus and what they can be doing from home. We are organizing and connecting digitally now. Everything's digital now. Lots of fundraisers online. We've had a happy hour, a virtual happy hour. And we have- And it's a real experiment in how politics is done. You know, we've had this trend now for, you know, more than a decade, maybe 15 years of, of politics moving online and, and the, the art of campaigning being more based on email, being based on what's in your cell phone, being based on social media. And this has just radically accelerated that shift so that now what is online, what is digital is, is all that exists right now when it comes to, to political campaigns. And of course, we've seen this with Joe Biden in terms of him having these live streams from the studio that's now in the basement of his house. And and President Trump is doing a lot of digital campaigning. But how is this playing out for smaller races? Campaigns are very scalable things. And and a running for dog catcher in your community is not so different from running for president at, at a fundamental level. And so you see a lot of the similar things happening, but on a scale that's just radically smaller. So I spoke with a state legislative candidate in Arizona. Uh, she's running as a Democrat. Her name is Kathy Connect. Hi, everybody. It's Kathy Connect. Um, I'm here to give you a campaign update. In a different world, she would be meeting with her local Indivisible chapter at restaurants and having little fundraisers. She would be going house to house and having house parties and trying to connect with people. So I thought I'd tell you what we're not doing now and the things that we are doing now. What we're not doing anymore is we're not having any coffee with Kathy. Uh, We're not doing any of the in-person things that we've done before. You know, she's been having these raffles where they will gather up stuff like bottles of wine or, you know, toilet paper and cleaning supplies. And if you come to the Zoom call and give 
four or five dollars or ten dollars to Act Blue account and within a certain window, they turn it into a raffle and they raffle off prizes to the people. The toilet paper. To, yeah, the toilet paper. So so voters have won toilet paper as part of fundraisers for for Kathy. You know, she also she's living with her adult children who are tech savvy and and a lot of her voters and this is a, outside of Phoenix are retired voters. And so she's been connecting with voters and saying, hey, what do you need? You know, do you need help with tech support? I can have my daughter help you out. It's all the same stuff you would be doing, but it's just everybody sitting in different places in front of their computer. And are there other kind of creative ideas that candidates have come up with in terms of how to reach people during this time where everyone's just stuck at home? So in Arizona, the Democratic Senate candidate there, Mark Kelly, is a former astronaut has been taking to Instagram live in the afternoons, in one case with his brother, who's also an astronaut, to talk about what it's like to be in space in isolation. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Kelly, and this book's about space. I want to tell you a little bit about this. So I wrote this book after my first space flight. And in one case, to read a children's book. Mousternaut, based on a partially true story. So, the space shuttle was all set for a launch, and the astronauts are doing their last-minute training. Well, what are some of the other challenges that, that the candidates that you've talked to have said that they are facing right now? I mean, the broader macro issues are you have uh, more people at home with time on their hands than probably any time in American history. At the same time, you probably have more people not thinking about politics in an election year than any time in American history because they have so many other concerns, you know, massive job loss, economic issues, health concerns. And so, so the challenge for organizers in all these campaigns is to figure out how to take advantage of people having lots of time on their hands and try and find a way to engage them back into the political space. I mean, there is a percentage of Americans who are deeply partisan, who view all of this as a partisan event. You know, the president has done really well or has done really poorly, or the Democratic governors are doing really well or doing poorly. But there's a lot of Americans, and these are the people that these campaigns are designed to reach, who are not focused on politics on a day-to-day basis, or who are torn between both parties, who don't really feel much allegiance to either party. And those are the targets of of these campaigns right now. And, and that's that's sort of the challenge. I'm curious if these circumstances have started to change some of the messages that we're hearing from local or state level candidates and and not just the the way that they're getting out those messages or some of the creative ideas that they're employing, but the actual issues that they're focusing on and, and where they see themselves being able to appeal to constituents. Yeah, I think it's been pretty dramatic. You know, a lot of the campaigns have actually shifted in their campaigning away from campaign messages. So they're no longer talking about policies or why they are better than the other candidate or what they're going to do if they're elected to office. They're asking people, how can we help? What can we do for you? And this is even true at the presidential level. You know, the, the Trump campaign boasts about a couple examples they have of Trump campaign volunteers who are calling people saying, how are you doing? And if they need help, they're going out and buying groceries for them and delivering the groceries to their house. You know, the Biden campaign talks about their campaign is sort of one based around the empathy of their candidate. And their organizers also, when they're calling voters right now or texting voters, they're offering information and they're offering sympathy and they're seeing how they can sort of make a connection right now at the level where voters are at, which is 
I'm scared, I'm worried, I don't know what I, what to do, and I, I may need some help. And and none of that would have been happening without this. I mean, it, it, without this, we would be talking about, you know, what should the tax rates be or what should we do about immigration? And the issue discussion has sort of faded into the background. And then how are we seeing this switch to digital organizing affect the actual staff that, that these politicians are employing? As the campaigns have shifted online to respond to the virus, it's exposed huge differences in, in how prepared the campaigns are to reach out. You know, the, the Trump campaign has been building a pretty massive operation with millions of dollars spent, you know, every month for years building online communities around Trump so that they can communicate directly with voters. They have a nightly television show that tends to get more than a million viewers a night. They have large staffs. They have big volunteer networks. The Biden campaign is trying to begin to catch up, but they're coming out of sort of a standing start. You know, they finished the primary despite their campaign, which was tiny. They haven't yet added a ton of staff to their digital operation. And they're trying to produce the content they want and need to reach these people. I also wonder how these questions about what the actual election will look like are affecting campaigns and and how they're preparing for that. You know, we have a lot of states where either it's not clear whether there is going to be an in-person election or there are a lot of unanswered questions about what the options are going to be for voting by mail or uh, voting absentee. And how is that playing into the strategy that campaigns are employing to get out the vote if they don't know what getting out the vote is going to actually look like. Well, in the short term, what it means is a lot more focus on using the cell phone as like the fundamental way of contacting voters. I mean, both campaigns on the presidential level, also at, at some of the down ballot races, have basically apps that they can give their volunteers, give them phone numbers to call, give them scripts to read, give them surveys to fill out about what people tell them, that keep data on who's being contacted. There's lots of texting programs. So That said, there's so much uncertain now and so much that is not being done that it's not clear what's going to happen later this year. I mean, for instance, yeah, we've seen a lot of the Democratic primaries be delayed until June, which is actually outside the standard window for appointing delegates to the Democratic Convention. Secretaries of state and election supervisors uh, around the country are scrambling now to shift and focus more on vote-by-mail elections, you know, most of the key swing states that will matter in the presidential race already have absentee voting by mail. It's not hard to get those ballots, but not a lot of people do it. Voter registration is usually a major focus of what would be happening right now, particularly in the presidential swing states. And voter registration is something that is usually done by putting people with clipboards in places that people gather. And no one's gathering. You can't really stand outside a supermarket or, you know, go into an apartment building to try and get people to register to vote. And that's a real concern, I think, for both parties in terms of how they're going to find the voters they know they need to find to win and get onto the rolls before November. Michael Shearer is a national political reporter for The Post. During this pandemic, lots of decisions have been made for us. We can't go to school because it's closed. 
We can't go to bars and restaurants because they're closed. Lots of offices have furloughed or laid off workers or told them to work from home. So that's what we have to do. But there are also some decisions that we can make. And we've all had to figure out. What level of risk are we comfortable with? And how do we balance the risks that our decisions pose for other people? More people are just getting realistic that at some point they're like, I'd rather just get sick than live like this. I'm Jess Conchera. I'm a reporter for The Post on the local enterprise team. Recently, I had a fascinating conversation with Robin Dylan Merrill. She's a professor at Georgetown, and she studies risk. We talked about the risks that people are taking during the pandemic and what kind of risks they're willing to take. All of the things that we've done every year up until now, where we've always just been able to manage whatever the latest disease was or the late, it didn't really affect us, I think made us very confident. I mean, if I could get my hair done right now, honestly, I would. I, I was feeling guilty about it, but I'm not anymore because it's, it's very negative. And everything we see, everything we hear. And I need some normalcy in my life. We talked to this woman, Natalie James. She's 53. She's working from home right now. And in the middle of all this, she had a mobile nail technician come into her house so she could get a manicure and a pedicure. I feel that we're headed down a very dark path of people being depressed and I, I just think it's important for people to have something to make them feel good, whether it's a funny movie or not. I just choose that it's my nails. It's scary. A lot of things go on through my head. I think about the first thing is fully protecting myself. I felt like I had to clear my mind because this is something I have to do if I'm going to continue working. I have to get over the fact that I'm going to be around these patients because I have to do what I got to do for my children. Annette Brown is a 32-year-old night shift custodian at a Kaiser facility in suburban Baltimore. The floor in the hospital that she cleans used to be just for surgery patients, and now it's a coronavirus floor. If I leave my job, there's not going to be any other money coming in. There's not going to be no one helping me. It's not like the company is going to do too much. We don't have, we have benefits, but it's not really going to help us get through you know, anything, if I was to lose my job. Risk people, risk communication people, risk perception people understand that people do not like dread and they do not like uncertainty. Annette says that her situation is even riskier because she doesn't always get the same personal protective equipment that doctors and nurses who take care of patients on that same floor get to wear. Just looking around when there is like, when the doctors or the nurse go inside the rooms with the patient, they're suited all the way up. They have on everything. They got on the eye shield. They got on the, the, the cap. They have on the mask. They have on the gloves. They have the whole gown. They have the booties. They have it all. But yet the housekeepers are being told, we don't need a cap. We don't need booties. You know, and... I'm looking at my gear and I'm looking at their, their gear and it's not the same. So it makes me question, why is that? I wanted to leave. I actually had a breakdown. I was in tears. 
And I didn't want to go in that area. I ended up calling my brother, calling a friend, and they had to calm me down because I was just ready to go. I just felt like my life is, is not, this job is not worth my life. I feel danger. Ingrid Contreras Martinez is only 19, but for her family, she's the breadwinner. She works at the Burger King in D.C., and she was really worried that her level of exposure to other people would mean that she would get sick. I told my, my manager, I'm not going to take orders if that customer does not bring a mask with them. These women, Natalie, Annette, and Ingrid, are coming up with answers for questions that soon we will all have to answer, which is what level of risk are we willing to take? There's no need to feel guilty. Whatever it takes for each person to be okay during this, as long as you're not harming another, I think we just need to do whatever that is. Like we're just soldiers on the front line and once one die off, we just bring in another person. Anytime that I see a customer get in the, in the restaurant, I feel scared. This is really tricky because all of these women, they're all making risk assessments just like the rest of us, but they have different levels of choices. And for a lot of people, it doesn't really feel like they have a choice. It's worse on the most socially, economically disadvantaged people. I think people need to figure out for each individual situation how you're going to successfully manage the risk. We're always making risk assessments, but what makes these choices different is that during a pandemic, every choice you make impacts not just you and your health, but the health of so many other people. Jessica Contrera reported the story with Marissa Lang, Samantha Schmidt, Hannah Natanson, Jesse Doherty, and Paul Schwartzman. And now, one more thing from food reporter Emily Heil. When I walk into a grocery store, I'm nervous about a lot of things. I'm thinking that maybe they won't have the things that I need. And what if an entire aisle is wiped out? What if I can't get any proteins? What if I can't get any vegetables? This whole elaborate meal plan that I've drawn up for the next two weeks that's going to get me through is suddenly out the window. And what do I do then? And then there's the just being in the store makes me very anxious. I'm looking at other shoppers. I'm making sure I'm not getting too close to them, but you know, they're getting closer to me than I feel comfortable. I see people touching things in the store and it makes me crazy because I try not to touch anything that I'm not going to put in my cart. I'm wiping down my cart. I turn into an aisle and I see someone coming toward me and it, it freaks me out. There are just a lot of layers of worry and anxiety that I'm feeling. And I thought, gosh, if I'm feeling all these things, I can't be alone. And so um, sure enough, when I talk to a mental health experts, they confirm that, in fact, this is really a thing. This is a thing a lot of people are feeling. And a lot of people who never really had anxiety about grocery shopping are feeling all of a sudden in this pandemic. 
So there are so many factors that are at play here that are making us all really anxious in the grocery store right now. You know, before we even get to a store, we might see lines, we might see security outside. That immediately causes some anxiety. Also, the the issue of competition. You're thinking if there's one thing of toilet paper you know, am I going to lunge at it? Am I ready to do that? You're looking at your fellow shoppers more as competitors than you are neighbors. And then there's also this thing called social comparison that mental health experts say is really, really stressful. And it's happening to us all in the aisles. We're looking at other people and wondering, are they doing enough? Are they wearing masks? Are they standing six feet apart? How close are they getting to me? Are they touching things? And then we're worried about how we're being judged. Do we look like we're doing enough? Do we look like we're doing too much? Do we look like we're paranoid? There are ways to manage grocery store anxiety these days. And first of all, if you can do this, you can get grocery delivery services. They're more expensive, sure. And in some places, there are weeks-long waits to get things, but that's certainly one way to avoid the grocery store. And if you have to go to the grocery store and you're feeling anxious, the key is to really understand what's happening to you, that it's normal, that you're not some crazy person who's being unreasonable. You can try breathing techniques to calm yourself down, slower, deeper breaths. Also try a little patience is what one therapist mentioned to me. Just try to go a little slower even if you're trying to rush. And also both of the the therapists that I've talked to said, try kindness, thinking about other people and understanding that these things that you're seeing in other people that are making you really upset, that they're too close, they're not wearing masks, that they're maybe acting from a place of stress and anxiety just like you are. And that, you know, this is something we have to all get through together and thinking about it from that perspective might help your anxiety level, if only just to get you out of your head for just a minute. Emily Heil writes about food for the post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Thursday is the last day that you can vote for our podcast and the Webby Awards. Go to postreports.com for the link to cast your ballot. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.